My name is Dustin, and welcome to the Earthian Podcast, where I explore the everyday stories, emotions, and realities that make up the human experience as we know it on Earth. Today's guest lives in the Bay Area in California. He's one of the warmest people I know. I met him when I was still living in San Francisco through his younger brother. Today, in our conversation, we talk about growing up in the Seattle area and how that influences identity. We talk about doing tricks at Jamba Juice and what that did for his life. And we talk about learning not to be a martyr for the mistakes that you've made. This is my conversation with Akash Saini. Can you talk about all the roles and traits that you identify with as a person? So how would you describe yourself to someone who can't see or interact with you? Wow, what a great way of describing that. Um, it's a great question. Let's see here. So, easygoing, uh, lovable, genuine, uh, good person, good heart, um, someone who wants to listen, um, and uh, yeah, just just someone who who wants to be a friend and wants to hear people out. I want to learn just as much as uh, just as much as you do. And with the idea of this podcast, hearing different people's stories, I think everyone deserves a chance to tell their story and, you know, you can learn from it. And, you know, I, I never really have any ill will towards people uh, in, until they actually do something to me. But, you know, that my point being is that, you know, everyone deserves a few chances and everyone's a good person and a special person as long as we put the time to understand where they're coming from. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's, that feels like a heavy answer right there. Uh, <laughs> it's been a heavy couple of months. I've been thinking about it. You know, it's, it's hard when, you know, you, you know people from like 10 years ago in high school or something like that. And, uh, and all of a sudden you see some kind of crazy stuff that they're posting on Facebook. And, you know, mm. I, I want to come back. Not I want to. I do come back with some sort of a clap back or like a, what are you talking about? And I want to be confrontational and, and, you know, very direct and like, hey, you need to check your privilege sort of thing. But then I also am like, if I do that, and, and I did do that. But, you know, I, I've sort of learned after one or two times, I said, they're not going to learn from that. They're just going to take that as an attack and they're just going to say, they're going to double down thinking that they're right. You know, yeah. if you take the time to educate and, you know, understand where they're coming from uh, and learn why they're saying those sort of things and then say, cool, well, this is where I'm coming from and this is where other people are coming from and they're saying these sort of things, um, then do you understand what we're saying now? Do we have some sort of a, uh, a collective thought there and usually more often than not it it becomes a little more civil at that point yeah that's that's awesome man so that's like the opposite of the approach that most people are taking at this point right uh including myself i mean i do that too like i'm if somebody says something i disagree with like on a very moral level i guess that's a good that's a good way to say it it's not a political thing like other people will think it's it's a morality issue yeah exactly um so interesting. Can you tell me about like some of those conversations that you've been having? I, I'm curious. I know who you are. And so I'm not surprised that that's the approach that you take. Uh, but I'm curious, like, can you tell us about one of those or maybe a, a, a general kind of description of how they've been going? I think the best example is my parents, to be honest, right? You know, I, so uh, I, I grew up in um, I, I grew up about an hour north of Seattle, Washington, which People think that is a pretty liberal area, but you know, once you get outside that metropolitan area of Seattle, it tends to be a little more conservative and and, and very white. Seattle in general is a very white city. I think it's 
the fifth or sixth whitest major city in America. Uh, and and then what's funny is an, a, a really cool stat is the next town south of Seattle is Tukwila. And it is the most languages spoken within an area code in the U.S. So, I mean, there's like some real crazy layered stuff happening there, right? Like, okay, you know, those two stats put together really paint an interesting picture of Seattle. Um, but yeah, growing up, we uh, we were in a... We were essentially. I was the only brown kid growing up in any any high school or whatnot, and um, I always sort of car, car, uh, uh, I always put my life into two different boxes. Where, you know, on the weekdays I'd go to school, and it, it would be me by myself along with a sea of white kids. And then on the weekends I would hang out with all my friends in Bellevue or Seattle, which is forty five minutes away, an hour away, and uh, and that's where all the Indian kids were, right? You know, and. And those two teams, those two groups of friends never combined together, right? It was, it was two separate identities. Um, so living that in that sort of an environment and growing up in that sort of an environment, my parents sort of taught me to look at racism with rose-colored glasses. They were like, listen, racism is usually not the answer. That's not what's happening here. And there were definitely a lot of things that happened growing up is in school and whatnot and how teachers reacted, how kids reacted to certain situations. Um, but my parents never wanted me to blame racism. You know, I remember there was an uncle, uh, you know, in, in our culture, anyone who's a family friend is an uncle or an aunt, right? So it's not a, it's not a literal uncle and aunt, right? So there was this family friend of ours who, uh, he, he was a car salesman. And I think he went through four or five different jobs within a span of six months. And each time he was saying it was racism and why he was leaving. And my parents took that story and ran with it. And they were like, that's wrong. That, that means he's looking for it. He, you know, he, he's not just kind of rolling with it. That's wrong. Right. And, you know, this guy came from, he, he moved from a different state to Washington. And, you know, he had that experience in six months. And it's just interesting. It's, I wish I could talk to the guy now and sort of hear more of the story. Like, you know. I only got one side of it, which was my parents' very vague, basic understanding of it. So to take all of that of how I grew up and then, you know, to, to really sit with that with my parents and explain to them, hey, do you remember this when I was in seventh grade? Do you remember this when I was in third grade? Do you remember this when I was in ninth grade? And do you see how there's a little bit of a lens of racism there? And, and they get it. And then, you know, they're understanding the idea of Black Lives Matter. They're understanding the idea of, you know, defunding the police. They're understanding, you know, they, they actually are sitting there listening to myself and my wife. And we, ex- we calmly explain them, explain them these, these key issues and, and where people are coming from. And, and they get it. They're reading. They're watching the different documentaries. Um, they're feeling it. And, you know, a lot of that wouldn't have even happened uh, without. So we took a trip to New Orleans about a, a year ago. And one of the things people do in New Orleans, it's funny, so my parents are vegan and my parents don't have never drank alcohol in their lives. So why the heck did I take them to New Orleans, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. Um, so we were like, all right, let's figure it out. Let's try to make this a fun family vacation without doing the things that people usually do in New Orleans. <laughs> um, and we had a great time. You know, there were swamp tours. It was a different part of the country that we had never experienced. And one of the things to do is plantation tours. And so I did research and I was like, all right, you know, my mom wanted the idea of a plantation tour was only to see the spectacle of these giant houses. 
and mm. you know these beautiful lawns and she's like oh i want to see the history of the architecture and it's like okay cool but there is a specific plantation that's about an hour away from new orleans uh, called the whitney plantation and it's been transformed into the nation's only slavery museum and so the idea it is so well done where not only is it a beautiful museum dedicated to slavery in America, but then the tour is 100% based on showing you how the slaves on that plantation lived. How did they show you that? Well, so they showed it, you know, by actually being there, right? So they showed us the housing that they were in. They showed us, you know, their lifestyle, you know, what the different uh, historians were able to say, okay, these are the things we found and this is what that was used for. You know, these are the the housing, the outhouses, the the chambers where, you know, if they were bad, where they had to be in and all that. Um, and there was a few memorials there as well. And it was really interesting and beautiful to, to see some, some stories that were written there and, and kind of displayed to us from a slave's perspective that they had mm. done a lot of work to preserve. Um, my parents have never really looked at racism dead in the eye like that before and i mean they were speechless it, it was so interesting to have two people who weren't born and raised here you know my dad moved here when he was 18 in 1980 and my mom moved here in 1987 um after she got married and and yeah they they just they started thinking about their lives and they started thinking about different things that had happened to them and and then for you know six months eight months later a year later for this all to happen they they got this understanding and they said yeah we understand what generational inequality means right the trauma behind that we we see that we get it yeah you know that person there might not have been an actual slave owner but their descendants were and we understand the trauma that comes from that you know that that these people of color and black people specifically are feeling and so yeah so that's a really great example of just you know someone who have really taking the time to learn these things and and you know now they're they're taking that and they're educating their family and friends as well right you know a lot of their family and friends it's interesting they, they say to themselves oh we've experienced it too what about us and it's like okay hold on yeah you've experienced it for maybe 10 to 20 years but not at the level of 400 years you know right. and and at a systematic level there but anyway so that that's that's really a great example of of uh of a positive change there yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, I mean, what about you? What, what about you? Are you, you said that, so you're being combative and all that. Have you kind of realized you need to take a step back or what's going on here? Um, you know, I, uh, I mean, I haven't been interacting with anybody in person outside of my parents and I've had conversations with them. I mean, I think we agree on the important things, right? Like the, the, the big issues that are going on, we agree with. Uh, there's like the little issues that we're, you know, still bickering back and forth on. But um, I guess the thing is dealing with the people that I don't get to talk to. I think that's even harder because I feel like you're right. If we just had the chance to have a conversation and just to understand like, okay, what do you actually believe? What do I actually believe? Like on a personal level, not on a, you're right. Uh, I mean, I'm right and you're wrong kind of level, like on a, human level i feel like we all would agree for the most part i mean there's extremists obviously but uh, there's certain things like one topic I, i'm thinking about is the defund the police uh, movement that was pretty widely un, uh, misunderstood and that was something that you know me and my parents argued about and when 
I was able to break it down. Like the idea isn't to get rid of police. The idea is to uh, not fund the police in areas where they're not needed, basically. So when you break it down like that, instead of taking the headline, they're like, oh, okay, I, I understand. I understand the, the value of it now. It's not what I thought. But that's the thing. Like we're so, we're like overwhelmed with headlines nowadays. It's so hard to dive into every single thing because you be you be spending your it's a day it's a whole job you know what I mean like you be spending your whole day looking into different areas um, so it's hard to filter so we just kind of take the the headlines as they are yeah no it, it's it's interesting at some point I mean I understand a little bit of marketing and a, and a little bit of um, organizing in terms of slogan building and slogan making and whatnot and I understand the thought process and idea behind that slogan defund the police and let's be honest it was happening at you know. 250 miles an hour so i'm sure there wasn't anyone who stopped and said wait a minute but you know we do have the chance to stop and think about okay well what do they mean by that before we start typing away or before we start yelling or whatnot and um and we need to we need to take that chance and do it there's so much misinformation like you just said man it's all headlines and there's so much misinformation out there and i'm blown away at how much misinformation is being spread out there and yeah. I mean, just in within my community, I see it all the time on Facebook. And it's funny, I've been, there have been people online who have said, why do you always fact check me or something like that? I'm like, because what you wrote there was alarming. And if it's true, that really sucks. And I want to know about that. But more often, unfortunately, every single time you post something, it's not, you know? And, and so I want to make sure that you are aware that it's not true. And that's so you know either to delete the post or that you know to edit the post because not everyone's going to look in the comments here, you know, on a fact check that I wrote. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to talk about you saying that you experienced racism as a kid. Uh, so you grew up, like you said, in a mostly white area. I did too. Uh, so my school was mostly white. It was probably like, you know, 80% white or something like that. And then the rest of us were scattered like Asians, Blacks. Uh, Latinos, pretty much that's about it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, can you talk about your experience as the other? Did you experience that? Um, or was it like you you felt pretty like you fit in, but there were just moments that kind of stood out? Yeah, man, there were moments that definitely stood out. You know, it's this was post 9-11. So, you know, kids are, I think at one point there were, I think it was a freshman and upperclassmen were calling me Muhammad Akash for a while there, right? You know, and you would get kids calling me terrorists. I remember one kid turned around in math class once and just sort of did this as like the, you know, like he's pointing to his skin as like a brown skin thing and a white skin thing. Wow. You know, something as like simple yet overtly crazy like that. Those things happen and and they definitely did happen. Um, (laughs) I was in an uh, English honors class and our uh, teacher was... So, you know, first semester passed, I got a A minus. And so, you know, after that, you have to have her sign off so you can apply for English honors 10th grade. And she wouldn't sign my paper. And I said, I don't understand. I received an A minus. She's like, I don't think you're ready for the next level. And we found out that it was myself, the kid who has Colombian parents and the kid who has Ukrainian parents were the only three people that she uh, didn't sign off on. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you know. My parents never said racism, but they definitely made it a big deal, and and they, uh, they they you know talked to the administrators, and they eventually that woman doesn't she didn't have a job the next year and all that, and, and so um, 
you know, there was a lot of that. But then also on the Indian side, right? I told you every weekend then I would be hanging out with all my Indian friends and, you know, being a part of a, the... <laughs> youth board for the uh, Indian Association of Western Washington and being a part of the community, doing community service within the Indian community. And, um, you know, a lot of those kids were saying, oh, man, you're you're really whitewashed, mm -hmm. you know? And so you're seeing it on both sides now in, in, in not as overt ways, but, you know, in not as hurtful ways, but you know, it still happened. So I definitely saw a lot of that. Um, did it affect me in a way where I'm, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I definitely don't feel like it should define who I am. If anything, you know, I, I kind of brush that all aside. And, you know, after a while, the Muhammad Akash stuff, like that was a good example of me eventually looking at those guys straight in the face and saying, stop. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't have to get a teacher involved or anything like that. Or a friend had to intervene. It was just me just saying, guys, stop it. You know, and yeah. being firm. So there were definitely lessons I learned from all of that. Yeah. And I never let it define you know, my experience. I love how, I love my, my, my childhood was great. You know, I, I have some really great friends and all that from that. Yeah, man, um, that's, that's interesting. I have, a, a, I think it's a similar experience. I think there's like a, a small group of us minorities that have immigrant backgrounds. Yeah. So either our parents or the generation above us, or even before that were immigrants. And that kind of puts us in this weird in between spot where where like, if I was to go back to Vietnam, I wouldn't fit in there. But if I was, I mean, here, I don't, I don't fit in here because I just look a certain way. Like we, we both look a certain way, right? We're obviously not white. <laughs> so um, we don't fit in by default. Um, so yeah, that, that's an that's a interesting experience. Um, did you, how did you kind of deal with the, the Indian side of things? Like that's, I mean, that was something that was also prevalent in Vietnamese American culture is to shame kids for being too white. You know, have you thought about that at all? Yeah, it's funny, man. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I think I'm still going through a lot of it, right? It's, uh, it, it, and it's going to be a lifelong thing I worry, I work on, um, especially once I have kids, right? That, that's going to be an interesting piece of it. Um, yeah. my, so my wife is, is, uh, white. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, now, not only am I dealing with my identity, but also then these kids who are biracial, right? And how do I, how do I speak to one side of that, that part of it, right? So that'll be an interesting piece and something I'm still working on. But yeah, no, I, I, I definitely pushed hard, right? So I would, I watch a lot of Bollywood movies and I love that, right? It's, you know, I, I, I know how to speak and understand uh, our language, um, but I definitely am not great at it. I definitely have an accent. Um, and I can't read or write, um, but I did take the time to, you know, watch a lot of movies and, and get into that. And in college, I was in a Bollywood acapella group, right? You know, so I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> doubling down and being more part. And that part of that is just being part of the community, right? And just getting to know people uh, within my community. But then also, you know, it's also me just pushing hard. Um, and yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. At one point, I was dating, you know, I was there's an expectation to date Indian women or marry Indian women, right? And, and you know, I never really paid much attention to it, but I definitely did date some women. And at one point when, a, when someone's, when the, uh, the girl's father is kind of at an event and I'm at the event too, and I said, hey, you should introduce me to your dad. And she goes, oh, that's not going to go over well. You're not the right cast. Wow. Things like that. And it's funny, I tell my dad that story now and he's just like, I, I moved here to never hear that. 
right? Mm. And and so yeah, it, it's it's something I'm always going to work with. You know, there's a show on Netflix called Indian Matchmaking where one of the parents were like, oh, he married a white girl. I, I don't trust him at all and stuff like things like that. It's like he doesn't respect his culture. It's like, hey, let's have a conversation, man. I, I respect my cult, my culture greatly and I, I definitely want to be a part of it as much as possible. Yeah. So I think it's always something I'm going to work on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that's an incomplete answer, but it, it's, it is incomplete, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an identity issue that's not really it kind of affects you since you're, you're, you're a kid and it kind of break, brings up these certain walls, I guess, or even shifts your entire personality in a way. Like uh, when I think about my life, I think about, I remember uh, Eddie Wong wrote this book, uh, Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah. And he talks about after growing up uh, uh, when he's in his teens or something like that, he realized that his entire life was like a reaction to everyone else so you know the the stereotype of asians is quiet submissive you know just don't say anything just just be be there yeah Um, and so instead of complying with that he reacted to it and so he became the opposite he became loud like he the the clothes that he wore were loud Uh, he was really violent as a kid um he was outspoken so that was an interesting thing. It's like you're either complying with it or you're reacting to it, but it's very hard to be somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? Totally, totally. And so I found the same for me. Like I, I realized that at one point, actually I think when I read that book, I realized, oh, my life is a reaction to that. Like I haven't been figuring out who I am. I've been, I've been reacting and proving people wrong. And so that feels weird also. It feels like in a way, I let those people control who I was and who be, who I became, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I totally get it. That's um that's so interesting. Yeah, in a way, I definitely have reacted and wanted to always push and, and make sure that I had a chance to show that I um you know, I, I I knew what I was doing without actually doing the traditional what every Indian good Indian kid is supposed to do. You know, I I got out of college. I I you know, I left college early and all that and I started working I you know live in the bay area and my wife is in school and I have a really great job where I can support the both of us like you know that's really amazing for someone who didn't finish college right that's you know and who works in an you know I so oh yeah and I don't work in tech I don't you know I'm not a doctor I, I work in the coffee industry um uh, I, I definitely have a really great job in the coffee industry and, and definitely uh, work with a lot of high-powered people. But, you know, that was all just me working really hard and, and you know, working on connections and all that. And, and you know, so, yeah, th- it's interesting. I have a few friends who we all sort of talk about how we kind of paved our own way and we uh, and we didn't really need our parents or our community to help us. And we did yeah. our own thing and, look, you know, we, we're pretty successful now because of it. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's a testament to my parents, right? That was me convincing them, saying like, hey, I'm not going to go to school and I got a job and just, you know, watch what I turn this $36,000 salary job a year into. And, you know, what has it been? Seven years later, right? It's, you know, it's exponentially yeah. grown. So Yeah, definitely. I, I want to talk about how you got into coffee. So we're definitely going to talk about that. But yeah. um I want to touch on two things. One, I want to talk about your childhood a little bit more. Totally. Uh, and then two, I want to talk about something you said that your parents said to you 
And that was that racism is not the answer to why you're getting treated this way. I'm curious, what, where do you think that came from? I think they never really saw it. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, think about it. They, they were, when they eventually moved here, they, it was, it was, you know, they were in Western Washington. They weren't in the South. They weren't in the Midwest, right? They weren't in places where they were very different, right? They were, you know, my dad was an engineer going to engineering school in Seattle, Washington, right? Mm-hmm. So I think they grew up never seeing it. And, and eventually, and essentially they just told themselves that it wasn't something that was as prevalent to where they are. I wonder if they, and I have talked to them about this, but I don't know if they've given me a good answer. I wonder if they, uh, they just didn't believe it for a while there. You know, my mom, my mom, she definitely has stories of, you know, she's, she's a hairstylist. Um, she definitely has stories of her working in a salon and people, clients mistreating her or saying, you know, the wrong thing to her. But she's always said that the way how I respond to that is by being a strong woman with a forceful voice. Um, and then they go away. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that's, I think that has more to do with her saying that I was assertive than I was claiming racism or fighting right. racism. Got it. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, let's move on to your childhood a little bit. Um, so can you describe like the, the mood of your childhood if you had to use a few words to do that? A mood. I like it. Yeah. I like it. A mood. Uh, I think it was, it was happy, man. It was, it was happy. Yeah. You, know, this, you play, you had, we had a nice house and, or, uh, you know, a house in a cul-de-sac, right? And we got to play outside and, you know, <laughs> I don't really know how else to describe it. It was, it was pretty good. You know, my parents were great. They took us to things and all that. And uh, we did a lot of road trips. It was pretty normal. There was nothing. I never really felt any sort of a struggle, right? Yeah. Although it sounds like, you know, speaking to my parents now, it sounds like the first couple of years were a little bit of a struggle, right? Just with my dad working and then going to school for his bachelor's degree right after that and, and coming home at like midnight. So it, there was a lot of struggle that they were really good about never showing me. Um, cool. And I think that's, I, I wish I could go back to that time and, and kind of explore it a little more and, and look at that lens and see, you know, if there was actual str- struggle there, but I never saw it at all. Yeah. Do you think that would have that would have been good to see the struggle as a kid? I mean, I probably would have been better with money. You know, it's money is one of those things that I credit my wife has really helped me understand. And, and you know, in the last two years, I, I really um, have focused on, on paying attention to goal setting and, and, and understanding savings and whatnot. And, and, you know, I mean, so a good, good example, um, we talked about, or I'm, I'm not sure if we have actually talked about this, but um, with the pandemic happening, I was on part-time pay and hours. Uh, for uh, about a month and a half, you know, so that that's quite a bit of a chunk that's taken out. So my wife and I sat down and and we cut fourteen hundred dollars per month out of our spending, you know. Where um, <laughs> and people ask me how the heck do you do that, and I'm like, all right, step one, car insurance is a sham. If you actually go around and you know you're not like losing anything, but or losing certain policies, but if you go around and actually shop around and talk to other car insurance companies, they're like, how much do you pay? Yeah, we'll like take a bunch off of that for you if you switch to us. So, you know, it's like that little things like that, right? You know, it's, 
So we were able to cut a lot of spending. We were able to, we actually, you know, at the end of the month and a half, we actually ended up saving quite a bit from that. We never touched the, the, the stimulus money that came in the, you know, it, so it was for two of us. So for $2,400 or whatever, uh, we never touched it. That just went straight into savings. We didn't have to worry about that. You know, we definitely made some concessions and, and you know, we're not buying from like the health store, but you know, we're going to Trader Joe's, right? I'm not buying the $30, $40 wine bottle. I'm buying the $16 wine bottle, but it's okay, right? I like did all this research to like find Instagram accounts on like, what is the good wine out of Trader Joe's, right? It's, you know, you figured it out, right? It's, it's, we figured it out, right? It's our lifestyle didn't really change as much. It was just more of a mindset. So I think that part of it, you know, some of that struggle might have helped. Um, I can't blame my parents for that, though, right? At the end of the day, as a parent, you don't want your child to struggle, right? That's or show that their childhood was a struggle. So, you know, and, you know, give my parents credit all my life. They always said, hey, sit down while we're doing our money stuff. And so you can watch us do it. And I never paid attention. I never did it. So, (laughs) yeah, there's like money from my 20s that I wish I kind of saved. But it's, it's okay. It's, you know. I'm doing yeah. it now, which is important. Yeah. What um, you kind of went into it a little bit, but what what were you like as a kid? Like, what was your personality like? This is super bubbly, super bubbly, super energetic, and uh, and really outgoing, and and you know, definitely didn't have much of a filter. I, I feel like that's the one thing I've learned in the last six seven years is is you know being a little more reserved and having a filter. Listening, I definitely want to listen to people more, and I want to hear what other people have to say. Um, and internalize what people are saying as well um but yeah i was the kid who was dancing around half the time let's be honest yeah so you haven't changed much <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm a little better now i feel like i don't need to be the center of attention all the time but yeah. <laughs> okay cool um one last question about your childhood and we'll move on what was your relationship with your parents like growing up uh i mean it, it was it's interesting, actually, now that I think about it. It was, so the traditional how Indian parents treat their kids and, and vice versa is, you know, you got to treat them with respect. You have to be, um, you have to listen to them. Every major decision kind of goes through them. They sort of tell you what to do. You know, they're the ones who are, are really pushing you in terms of any sort of a studies or achievement or whatnot. Um and that was there with my parents, but it, it really was a little more leeway and not in a, they were being easy on my brother and I, but more in a sense of, you know, what do you want to do? You know, my mom always had the saying of, you could be a burger flipper when you grow mm-hmm. up, but I need you to be the best burger flipper. Like I, I need to make sure that, you know, not only do you love it, but that you really put the time and effort into being a master of it, um, yeah. which I really, I really internalized and took and. You know, so it's whether, you know, growing up, I wanted to be a journalist. So whether it was, you know, knocking on the door of my local newspaper because my school didn't have a newspaper and and uh, and becoming a sports writer for them, you know, like a high school sports sports writer um, or uh, or, you know, just finding things that I absolutely love doing and, and uh, trying to be the best at it. You know, a good example of that is I had a summer job working at Jamba Juice and mm-hmm. uh, I worked at the lowest performing Jamba Juice like it was in a crap location it was you know no one showed up it wasn't there was no mall or anything nearby or anything like that and our general manager uh stopped by the store just to you know see how things were going and 
he saw how I was interacting with people. If someone ordered like a strawberry whirl, I would like spin before I handed it to them, right? <laughs> I would do this thing where I would take the ice and I would throw it up in the air and catch it with the blender, right? Like I figured out all these, all these tricks, right? One of my favorite things to do was I would have the cup in my hand. I would put the lid, put the straw, take the wrapper off the straw, right? So, you know, it's exposed, it's open. And because it's a smoothie, it's a thick smoothie, right? I could flip it in the air, catch it without anything spilling, and then hand it to the customer, right? Like I had practiced that because no one was coming to the store. There was so much time in the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and this guy was like, can you drive an extra 20 minutes to our highest performing store? And I'm like, sure, on like weekends. Yeah, why not? And he's like, great. So every weekend he would get me to the Alderwood Mall, which is, you know, their busiest store in a mall. And, you know, there's one person on register, one person putting in the fruit, one person, um, you know, putting in the juice. And then he was like, you're going to stand right here. Your job is to put the ice in and hand the drink to the customer and do yeah. whatever the heck you want. And it was, I mean, you know, like that's a good example, right? Of like, hey, I found the one thing I really liked about this job that, you know, I was not really wanted to make it my full-time thing, but I, yeah. I just, yeah, I took it and I, and I ran with it. And, you know, I sort of learned that at an early age that that's what people, uh, as long as you love what you're doing, people are going to respond to it and, and going to give you more opportunities. That's beautiful, man. That's, that's, a, that's a great story. Um, I went to Japan in November. Uh -huh. And the reason this ties in is because there's this part of Japanese culture, and I'm not going to generalize like I know and I understand the culture, but what I observed. Is it that like idea like orange sherry or whatever? Dedicating to one craft. Oh, right? yeah. Okay, okay. Orange sherry is something else. But no, no, I love this. Keep going. Yeah, so, um, I mean, just the the dedication they have to one thing, doing one thing. For example, one thing that we noticed, uh, this is amazing, but uh, we would take the trains from city to city. And uh, my friend that I was with noticed that the after everyone got off the passenger cars, um, the I guess the employees would go through the train and at each chair they would point out and they would just say it to themselves, chair 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 it was to help them focus on what they were doing at that point um but it, it was amazing you see that everywhere you see the, the dedication to craft like in in cooking like seeing them make a piece of sushi in front of you it's it's i was like blown away you know um so you see it everywhere and you feel it it's not like a, a thing it's it's tangible almost yeah you know? like you you walk around and you understand that these people care about what they're doing and because you see quality everywhere. You might not be able to put your finger on it, but you feel it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that reminds me of what you described there with, you know, you just being at Jamba Juice and spending time to perfect the thing. Like the, you, you added something to that craft that wasn't there. No, not that's, at all. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. No, it, it, Japanese. So I've heard stories of Japanese culture and I haven't been yet. I've heard pizza is amazing there. And that's because... You're like, dude, I'm not going to go to Japan and eat pizza. I know. No. <laughs> I've like said that to a few friends. Like, they're going to Japan and I'm like, oh, you should get a pizza there. I heard the pizza's good. And they're like, what, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> no, I've heard that, the, that there's like this weird culture within Japan that these people take so much care of how they're making the dough, the sauce. And they like obsess over it so much that apparently the pizza scene is really amazing out there. Uh, so I mean, you just see it, right? And and anything out there, right? It's so. Uh, I'm really into watches, 
and um, you know anything below five hundred dollars is considered kind of a shit watch, right? Which is <laughs> mm-hmm. which is sad. Um, but Seiko, which is a Japanese brand, is yeah. like the one thing you can buy under five hundred dollars. It's like anything else not worth it. But if you know buy a Seiko, even the cheapest Seiko watch for eighty yeah. bucks on Amazon is like considered a really great buy, wow. and is a really wow. craft piece of timepiece to own um and i just think that's so interesting the idea that i was explaining the the concept they call it orange sherry the idea is is that um and malcolm gladwell did a whole podcast about this and and i've read books and there's actually a restaurant in santa rosa california or i'm sorry uh uh healdsburg california where their whole methodology is behind this and they even like give you a little placard explaining what it is but the idea is is that with hospitality you're focusing on what the what your guest wants before they even ask for it, right? In like a restaurant point of view, think about it. It's them coming to you with um, a moist towelette so you can wash your hands. You don't have to go wash your hands anywhere else. They give it to you, right? Um, you know, or the idea that they're serving you tea right when you walk into the door, um, or or your you know whatever before you, so you don't even have to worry about asking for those sort of things. Um, and it's like something that's ingrained with their in, in their culture that they focus on with any sort of design. So like, there's a lot of uh, research and books that have been written about Lexus doing this and Toyota doing this within their cars, where the idea yeah. is that you know, hey, we're gonna make sure that this is a item that no one has to really ask for something because we've already thought about it there is a beautiful like ux point of view there right and and i know you as being a ux designer you definitely can speak more to that than i can but i think that that i i definitely come at it more from the hospitality standpoint and i I love that I, i think that there's something so beautiful about that Okay, that's a great segue. You just like segue me right into uh, the next topic. So okay, cool. I want to talk about coffee and hospitality. I love uh, it. I want to talk about coffee first, and then we'll move into hospitality second. But um, for those people who don't know, can you describe what this underground coffee culture is and how you're involved in it, how you got involved in it? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, so I... Uh... I was living in Olympia, Washington, going to school there, and I remember I, I had moved there, uh, and the first weekend I was there, I tweeted, this Twitter was still brand new at this point, um, it was like 2010 or something like that, and I had just tweeted, you know, what what does someone do in Olympia on a, on a Saturday, right? And someone who I guess had followed me, or, or knew, you know, we had never met, but they were following me, they said, come to the lab, and I was like, all right, we're fine, you know. Let's do this, right? This is how I'm going to meet new friends. Uh, so I go, it's a, so it was a coffee lab. It was a company called Espresso Parts, and they sell a bunch of uh, parts and machines and, and different coffee wares for cafes and restaurants and whatnot. And, uh, and so the guy there was, um, he was there. There was a party for uh, the National Barista Competition. And so everyone was there watching this competition that was happening in Houston. Uh, at the same time, and there were some local guys at some of the local cafes there in Olympia who were competing and were in the finals. And so there was two competitions. One was a barista competition where, you know, in 15 minutes you have an oral presentation with uh, three certified judges to make three espressos, three cappuccinos, and then three specialty beverages, whatever you wanted to do. Um, 
back in the day, you know, that could have been a mocha or something like that, or, or oh, I added oranges to my mocha, ooh, you know, or pumpkin spice or whatever. <laughs> now it's like a science experiment where it's like nitro nitrogen is being introduced or like, hey, I'm going to add um, smoked cedar bark or something like that, and it's going to, you know, the idea is to how do you symbolize certain things within the coffee. Um, so it's less a drink that you would receive at a store. So and then, and then the other part, the other competition was just a standard pour-over competition where you had three certified judges and you had to make three of the same coffees in 10 minutes. And it was an oral presentation where you talked about what the coffee was and what your flavor notes were. And you were being judged on not only the presentation, but how, how your coffee tasted and how accurate your flavor calls were. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I was like, cool, this is weird. These people are fun. I like it. Um, but as I kept hanging out with this guy, his name is uh, Michael Fernandez, as I kept hanging out with him and talking to him, and we would spend more and more days together, while we're hanging out and talking about hip-hop or talking about whatever because we became friends, not about coffee, you know, he was refracting his brewed coffee. What does refracting mean? Refracting means he's essentially um, seeing the amount of solids within the liquid. So it's called a TDS, the Total Dissolved Solids. So, you know, uh, we want to make sure once we get that extraction percentage, that coffee is within 18 to 22% of that extraction percentage, right? Anything above that and you start getting some crazy flavors, anything below that and, you're, you know, you're getting some weird sour flavors or whatnot. Or, or, uh, and it's just so interesting that, you know, he's sitting there with a $700 machine doing that while we're talking about something else. And I started getting into it and I started tasting it and I started going to coffee tastings just on my own on Wednesday mornings in Olympia and, and started getting a taste for it to the point where I started competing in those competitions, specifically those pour over competitions, no formal training whatsoever. Um, and eventually after a couple of years of doing that, I won a competition, uh, you know, so I, I was a regional champion um, and I had done really well at the national level that year as well. Uh, and yeah, so I, I just got really into it and then eventually as I was still in school, I said, all right, well, I love this and I kind of want to learn a little more. Maybe I should get a weekend coffee job somewhere. Um, and that just spiraled into me managing a shop and, and, um, and you know, from there doing a whole beverage program for a place and, and that blew up. And then, you know, just getting a job in coffee and saying, you know what, screw, screw school. I'm, I'm sort of yeah. doing what I'm, what I'm in school for already and, and now's the time to do it. And so I just started doing it and, you know, to the point now where I sell commercial coffee equipment and I work with huge brands like Pete's and Dunkin' and Starbucks and, you know, all these people. And, you know, they're, these are like some pretty bigwig companies and bigwig people within those companies. And, you know, I'm like the main representative for their $15,000 espresso machine or coffee machine or whatnot. And yeah, it's cool. It's a lot of fun. I really dig it. You know, I... I, it's the whole quality of coffee part of it is sort of lost now that I'm I'm working more on a commercial and a and a, and a larger scale. Um, but you know I still have a lot of fun in it. I'm still working with coffee. You know uh, one of the big things I get to do is is uh, improve the coffee quality at gas stations. Like that's mm. that's so cool. You know it's funny people ask me all the time. They say you know how do I up my coffee game at home? And I say the number one thing you can do is buy a grinder, specifically buy a burr grinder. Um, because when you're buying fresh whole bean and then grinding it fresh every day, um, it makes a huge difference in how your coffee tastes. It really does. Um, 
And essentially, I sell a machine to these gas stations where that's the difference. Instead of buying these pre-ground packs of coffee that they open up every single time, they're buying whole bean coffee now. And it's being ground fresh for every cup. Uh, and so that's cool. It's fun. You know, it's, I sort of figured out a, a way to make money and uh, a way to, uh, to have a living and something that I love with, you know, still understanding uh, a way to, uh, you know, yeah, be a part of something that I love and something that I, I cherish and uh, want to push forward. Yeah, that's awesome, man. All right. I got to ask, what, what does it take to be a, a champion barista? That's a great question. Um, just taste coffee. That's really the main thing. You don't have to like make coffee even, but you really need to understand how coffee tastes and, and, um, and being able to call out those flavored notes. And, and that's the biggest thing is, is just being confident, right? You and I could taste something together and I could say, wow, that tastes like blueberries. And you could look at me side-eyed and say, that doesn't taste like blueberries. And that's okay, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I shouldn't feel ashamed by that and or vice versa. Right. I'm, I understand I have a little more power in that situation. Let's say it's you, right? You're the one who say it tastes like blueberries. And I say, I side eye you. No, you shouldn't feel, uh, you shouldn't feel judged and you shouldn't feel worried that, oh, I looked like an idiot in front of this guy who knows a lot about coffee. That's not the case. Right. Yeah. Everyone has their own perceptions. Uh, a good example is, you know, I will eat a lot of foods that have more of an umami flavor to it, um, right? And and so there's a there's a specific way of fermenting the coffee once you pick it that gives a very wine brandy miso-y flavor to the coffee once you brew it um, mm. that I perceive as a positive that people I've noticed of more Asian backgrounds will perceive as a as a positive. But then when you have someone score that sort of coffee who, who's not used to eating those foods on a regular basis, it's interesting how they look at it as a negative and they think it tastes like moldy cherries. So I just gave you like brandy, wine, you know, miso. Those are all positive things. Like, oh, that sounds really good, right? Maybe not in coffee, but it still sounds really good. Like just flavor notes by themselves. And then moldy cherries. You don't ever want moldy cherries in anything, right? And it's just interesting to see that, you know, so there's always going to be a perception there, no matter how much you take the time to calibrate yourself and with other people. So just taste coffee. That's all it is. Taste wine. People are afraid to always uh, talk about wine notes and all that. No, just just drink it and say what you think it tastes like. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. That's, that's, a, that's a very humble view of it, I feel like. Um, like there's no right answer. Yeah. And it... it there likely is no right answer. It's just all subjective. Um, yeah. One thing that reminds me of is, so I did industrial design. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, designing physical products. And one of the things that I started doing, because in the beginning I had trouble understanding the emotional aspects of objects. And, uh, and I didn't understand how people got it. Like some people just had the sixth sense almost where they understood that this form spoke this certain way and this thing looks good with this, you know, and I, I just, it was just like very abstract to me. Um, so what I did was I started just picking up objects and looking at them for like 10 minutes. And in the beginning, it would be like the first minute would just be blank. Like, I don't understand what I'm looking at. You're like, it's a piece of wood. Come on. <laughs> exactly. And then but at, you know, as time went over, like the minutes passed and it was like five minutes, 10 minutes. I started having a thought like my brain would just be like, oh, that, that corner is interesting. 
or that line and how it changed from like a curve to a, a sharp area that was that's interesting to me i want to look at that more and by doing that you know over time i got to know what i liked in objects and i got to know um why i like those things and so those two things kind of gave me power because i could under i could understand why and and how um i could design products and how can argue for those things yeah. uh, in the design meetings and things like that so that kind of reminds me of that that process of you saying you know just drink the coffee and see what you get from it yeah, yeah. I, I mean at the end of the day especially now with the COVID 19 right more people are making coffee at home and drinking coffee at home now right so they're actually they have the power to really influence are they going to be drinking a quality product or are they just going to drink the same thing that they've always drank all their lives Nothing wrong with that last piece, by the way, right? There is something nostalgic and there, you know, we see it with TV shows that we like to watch or whatever, right? Nostalgic and, and there is something comforting about having something that you day in and day out, exact same thing, you know how it's going to taste and you know it's going to be delicious and that's it. Um, cool. But there are definitely people out there who are like, I want to try a different coffee every month. I want to make sure it tastes its best way possible, right? And, and that's... Uh, yeah, just have fun with it, man. There is, it's interesting. There's a there's a report out that, um, and this is a couple of years old now, that there are more flavor compounds that can be detected by the human taste in coffee than in wine. And the issue is is that people just when they're evaluating coffee, not professionals, but you know, just uh, someone who's not a professional coffee taster, when they're tasting coffee for taste, it's usually really too hot. You know, our human tongue can't really taste anything above 180 degrees Fahrenheit, right? And if you're drinking your coffee and it's around that, right? So if you use 200 degree water to brew it on there, by the time it gets into a pot and in your cup, it's around 185 or so. You should probably let it chill for a little bit before you actually drink it. Um, and that's if you're just drinking it black. Awesome, man. Okay, so let's talk about hospitality now. Um, <laughs> when I think about hospitable people, I think empathy. Um, and that thing you talked about earlier of anticipating needs, I think that's empathy. Yeah. That's thinking through their experience and then thinking, okay, they might want this thing. So let me give it to them. Um, so I, I think about empathy. I also think about gratitude and confidence um, because you have to be confident enough in yourself and in whatever you're offering to offer it. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm curious does that does that sound right to you? First of all, like what I just said. I mean, yeah, uh, I never really thought about it, and I mean, okay, that's a lie. I have thought about it, but um, I think you beautifully put it. I, I think that a lot of that makes a lot of sense. You know, most of that actually came from my mom. She she really loves having people over and, and doing a lot of that. Um, and uh, it is a little bit in my culture as well. That is sort of a thing. There is, you know, the whole idea of that a guest is God. I mean, mm. and I know that's really off the deep end there, but that is, you know, loosely translated. That is a, a saying. Oh, interesting. Okay, so that that's that that's uh, placing really high importance on the guest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that isn't, you know, within the Indian culture, that is something that a lot of people say. Um, I think in general, I am definitely a people pleaser, right? And I want people to feel comfortable, and and I want to make sure that you know. It, I'm not the best person when it comes to reaching out and making sure people are okay, but 
you know, in those moments where I get to be hospitable to you and, and invite you into my home, I want to make sure you know that you're like my main focus while you're there. What kind of questions do you ask yourself when you're preparing uh, for a guest to come over? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, it's like what kind of drinks might they want? What kind of food might they want? Making sure it's clean in the house and right. They feel comfortable in it because it is clean. Um, <laughs> I got really funny advice when I was really young, like 20, 21 years old from someone who's a little older. And it was definitely along the lines of when a girl comes to your apartment sort of thing. Um, but he was like, gosh, it doesn't matter if the rest of the house is dirty. You got to make sure the bathroom is clean. Yeah. <laughs> Always make sure the bathroom is clean no matter what, because if someone needs to use the restroom, it's like really important that the bathroom is clean. And yep. It, it's funny, you know, it, it's it's such a simple thought process, but it, it makes sense, right? It's like the bathroom is the one place where people are just going to have the doors closed and, and sort of actually really pay attention to things, right? And, and you know, let's be honest, right? We all want to make sure we do our business in a clean environment, right? And if there's like pubic hair running around somewhere, that's not the best idea. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know. Sure. Isn't there a saying in the restaurant industry that's like, the restaurant that has a clean bathroom, you know that they care about their customers. Oh, you know? dang. I like that. That's good. I haven't heard that, but I like that. That's, a, you know, I mean, the focus that we always had was if you got time to lean, you got time to clean, right? So that that's that's the <laughs> saying I always heard. And, and it's funny, as annoying as that is, after you hear it for the 20th time from, you know, even if it's not a manager, even if it's just someone next to you, you know, you still do it. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or you, or you flip smoothies around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're, you're probably one of the more confident people that I know. And I think you say that you, you've been like that, right? Since you were a kid. You've been pretty uh, out there. Yeah. Or, or would you say that's just extroverted behavior, but internal insecurity? Well, yeah, wow. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, there's definitely insecurities there, of course. Um, but man, you know, anytime anyone would ask me this question, I would always kind of say that, you know, I, there, there is a lot of lessons that I learned from, um, overly confident people like Kanye West. It's hard to give that example and that answer now, just with how, listen, man, there's some mental health thing going on there. So I I don't want to give too much lip service there, but anyway, I mean, you know, yeah, that, that's. As a kid, I kind of looked at that. There was a lot of people out there who were overly confident, and let's be honest, they got results. They, they, you know, people eventually listened to them. You know that that was the big thing that they preached, and and I, I sort of saw that and said, all right, I, I have to believe in myself. I have to really say that. Listen, I everything that I'm doing is because I think that I am really good at this. You know, and and just. Uh, and if I'm not, then great, I'm going to learn and I'm going to, you know, figure it out. And, and I always take the time to learn. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, Is that something you still tell yourself now? You know, it's like, interesting. Now it's a little more reserved. I definitely have taken the time to to sit back and listen. And, and um, you know, there's definitely insecurities there. But I, I am better at actually understanding those insecurities. Right. And um and I also have learned to check myself a little more now, which is great. You know, I, I, actually, this might not have anything to do with confidence, but this just has a good ex- 
good example of me being able to to kind of see what's going on, right? My uh, I was getting migraines last week, and I was like, why am I getting migraines all of a sudden? You know, it's, I don't usually get migraines anymore. And uh, it's because I had a disagreement with my boss, and I actually had to come clean that I wasn't telling the full truth with something with her. And the moment she called back and told me, oh, yeah, I sort of figured it was totally fine. You know, no big deal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, thanks for letting me know, but it actually wasn't that big of a deal. Migraine went away. And I was like, it's so interesting how I've worked for a few women women now, and, and I really, really hold on to, oh, I did something bad. And, and I, I really, I feel like, you know, my body stresses out a lot because of it. And I've had men who are my bosses, and that same situation, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. I would have just told myself, he's not going to think it's a big deal. And that's it. And, and my body wouldn't react. And in less than 24 hours, I was able to just sit with that and just say, yeah, there's something kind of weird going on there that I need to really think about uh, and, and really work through. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, I, there's definitely insecurities, and I definitely take the time to, to listen and, and talk about them now. Um, but I still think confidence is there. I, I, at the end of the day, even if you get pushed down, right? Like there's always that saying, you, you reach for the stars and if you fall, you land on the clouds, right? Like, you know, that's, that's, that's a really good way of living your life. Let's be honest here. Man, what you said about you, uh, I don't know if, so I kind of made a jump in a logical jump. So let me know if I'm like wrong here, but no, no, I want to hear it. Let's do it. Yeah, when you said uh, that your response to women bosses is different than men bosses, I'm curious if that was tied to your relationship with your mom. It probably is, and I and yeah. I've and I've thought about that. It's 100% tied with my mom. My mom is very strong, very strong-willed, very vocal. You know my mom as well. You've met her. She's um, she's very outspoken, and um, and and yeah, you know, almost every boss I've had as a woman is. is has very similar characteristics to my mom and uh and yeah there is a little bit of that complex there and uh i i've worked on making sure that i try to do you know separate that yeah because that's not fair to them too let's be honest here right hard man um i i was gonna say i experienced a similar thing but with my dad so my dad was like the definitely the the you know the leader of the house um very strong personality and I find the opposite of, of what you experience. So with uh, women bosses, I, I tend to actually feel very comfortable mm-hmm. with them. But with men bosses, I don't. And I feel really small. So that's something that I'm currently going through and, and working through and struggling with. Um, and that's something that just came up in maybe the last year or so. So that's been interesting. Um, I don't know. I guess my process for going through it is just working through my issues with my dad. I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then I hope that once that goes through, you know, my relationship with any, any men in uh, positions of authority, like those kind of heal. I wonder how you're working through it. Yeah, it's less with my mom um, and more or less, honestly, with myself. It is really just, you know, understanding that there's some bias there and that I essentially need to tie it away from, you know, who the boss is and, or who my boss is compared to, you know, any other woman really. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
my wife has done a good job of really helping me out with that. And, and there's some, some tools that I've used in terms of just kind of listening to my body and um, envisioning certain situations mm-hmm. and just how I would react to those. Uh, and, and essentially <laughs> telling myself, hey, that was wrong how you just did that. Like, fix that, man. Come on. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, no, it, it is really interesting. This is very recent. This is about a week ago, week, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So it's still something that I'm working on to this day. And and um, I also think with more situations like this that arise with, you know, any boss, whether it's a woman or a man, I think that's just going to help me grow further as well. Definitely. It's crazy how your body holds pain like that. And I think it sounds so woo-woo sometimes when people say it, but it's so true, man. I mean, where else would the where else would it go? Yeah. Well, what's crazy is just the mental and the physical side of it, right? How crazy that yeah. is, right? Where it's just your body holds a lot of trauma that you, we don't realize, right? We think that oh, it's 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 either physical or psychological, and that's it. Where it's not, it really isn't. They're all kind of tied together. So we talked about confidence. I'm curious about the opposite side. What uh, what is something that you've either been insecure about or you are insecure about currently? Um, you know, I'm a little bit of a heavier set guy. There's, there's a lot of that, right? It's, uh, the weight is definitely an insecurity and, you know, I'm doing a lot of work on that to try to get myself even just to the point of working out again, right? It's been a struggle on my end and and just, you know, seeing how I can be physical. I like being physical. I, you know, I used to be a runner, used to do a lot of cross country and track and, and, you know, just an outdoor runner and was really into it and, and at some point it's just stopped and, and it's been hard to kind of get back into it. And so, you know, I, I'm doing a few things. I'm, I'm seeing a, a therapist right now about it and, um, and also just going to a very specific low-impact chiropractor who, who kind of specializes in, in just opening up these things. And, and, you know, that way then when I wake up in the morning, I, uh, I don't feel those aches and pains that I'm going to blame as to why I'm not going to go out for a run or, or work out or stretch or do whatever. Uh, yeah. So that's that's kind of the current uh, insecurity that I'm really working on. I mean, the other one is probably like, you know, hair loss. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, uh, I'll probably shave my head at some point. But yeah. I don't have to go there yet, but eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you... When you, when you are insecure about something, how do you approach it? How do you approach the, the insecurity? How do, you pro- like, how do you approach reconciling it or you know, figuring it out? Well, that's the thing. Half the battle is just acknowledging it, right? You know, for a while there, it's, it's not even acknowledging the issue. Um, mm. And even just now, I've sort of acknowledged that I wanted to, uh, that I want to want. That's the key word to work out. But then actually taking the step of doing it. And then the next step is actually doing it again. Right. Right. That That's sort of the case there. Um, you know, honestly, the first step usually for me is talking about it. If there's any insecurity, that's, that's the first thing. Luckily, I have my wife is really great to talk to about these things. Um, I've never been one to talk to my brother about anything like this. However, mm-hmm. we've recently started talking more and more about these things. And I think that's helped, right? Because there is, you know, a little bit of a familiarity with someone who's known me my whole life. You right. know, your parents are obviously going to always more or less scold you to do those sort of things. My parents don't scold me. 
but you know they definitely bring it up from time to time but my brother has never brought it up really and if he does it's very very like like a one comment thing and that's it and he's yeah. in general a person like that a very one comment sort of guy but i appreciate that he's taken the time in the last couple weeks to actually talk to me about it so i you know obviously we all have insecurities i have i have a lot of insecurities myself yeah uh, i mean when i first started this podcast i was super insecure about the way i talk like that's one thing um and the way that i articulate things you uh, you articulate very well <laughs> no you really do i'm not that's not so, you know it's still something that i work on um and uh one thing that's been helping me recently and i i want to i've been saying this a lot to my friends because i it just was like a thing that i realized that i, I did never did so um there's this saying you know when you hear like rich and successful people they say like the one thing i wish i did was take the time to enjoy myself enjoy and, and enjoy the things that i was actually have uh, getting and uh, earning and i kind of took that to mean that you should take the time to feel proud and and i realized my whole life i had never done that and i think it was because of this fear that's like if i take the time to say like i'm proud of you like i'm proud of you for doing that thing for for doing that hard thing even if you fail i'm still proud of you i fit i felt like i would lose motivation because my main motivation was pushing myself right like you're a piece of shit you better get up and do this thing um you know you're 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 skinny you need to work out you you're this you know you're stupid you need to study more or whatever it was um but I've been trying the opposite approach, which is like loving myself. To me, even then, as I say it, it's I get like kind of cringy a little bit. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's actually kind of beautiful. I'm gonna be honest. Yeah, I mean that's something. Uh, like for example, let's say I have a presentation and I've been nervous about it for weeks, and then I give it, and regardless of how it turns out, I will stop and just say like, I'm proud of you for doing something hard. Like you could have just quit your job <laughs> and, in, and instead you actually faced it and you did it. Uh, and letting yourself feel, and in, at first I had trouble doing, I had trouble uh, picturing myself as a grown man doing that because I just couldn't, I couldn't do that. I just couldn't see myself talking to another grown man like that. So I pictured myself as a kid, uh, as like uh, the five-year-old version of me. And I pictured him doing the thing that I just did and then I would say you did such a good job and like praising my the child version of myself. What, where, uh, where did you get this? Did you just kind of come up with this on your own or? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it started with the child thing and I would, I would uh, imagine people as kids. And this is something I, I talked about before, but like um, there was a time, there was a dinner that I was, I think, I think my mom said something that annoyed me at dinner. And so I, I looked at her and there's that complex of like growing up and, you know, they're always being on my case. And so I would, I had this reflex of just like, get off of me. But uh, I, I sat there for a second. I imagined her as a kid and uh, her being, you know, having fun or smiling or laughing or whatever. Anyway, it was a weird way of me getting over my anger because I realized, oh, she's a kid that just is grown up. And, uh, and I started applying it to myself. And that was like kind of, that was pretty trippy actually when I started doing that. Cause it allows you to empathize for yourself without, um, 
it's like an entry point into empathizing for yourself if you can't empathize for yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally, totally. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and at the end of the day, that is the most important thing you can do, especially for yourself. Um, there's so many things you put you put there. I mean, first things first. It's so hard for us to look at our parents as men and women, or you know, whatever, right? As people instead of as parents, right? right. Like that is so hard to do. But I think more or less we need to take the time to really talk to them more that way. Um, yeah. especially, especially as we get older, really. And, you know, there might be some grudges or whatever that we hold on them. Yeah, ma'am. Wow. That's so it's interesting. Uh, my wife right now is, is, uh, in the middle of doing a, um, love, sex and relationships coaching, uh, class. And, uh, you know, and so I think she's actually doing it right now in the other room. But this idea of visualizing yourself at a younger age and, and seeing how, like, what's triggering there and talking to yourself at a younger age, that is literally things that they do in that class and that they're being taught in that class to do. So the fact that you're able to get this on your own just kind of shows the amount of work you've done and, and just uh, how much you really understand yourself. Obviously, that doesn't mean I'm trying to tell you that you don't have more work to do because we all do. But I applaud you for that. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, acid trips help. <laughs> 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 I'm not gonna say there; it was completely me, but uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I think that's great. Oh man, and hey, man, it sounds like it's a lot cheaper than than doing a whole there. teaching program. <laughs> okay, so um, when you look at your life so far, do you see any themes that thread their way through your life? Or, or do you separate them into separate stages? So I'll buy you a little time and kind of uh, give you an example. So for my own life, the one thread that's weaved itself in and out, and I kind of split myself into these things as well, is emotional phases. So like when I was younger, I felt trapped emotionally. And then in my teens, I started overexpressing uh, and, you know, throwing out my anger. And then um, now I'm in the point where I'm like questioning. And so I, I see like, clear phases uh i don't see myself as like a certain age i see myself as like i'm emotionally i was emotionally this i am emotionally this and then i'm trying to be emotionally this um but you know there's other things too there's like people uh divide their job their their life into maybe jobs that they've had or maybe school and not school um that kind of thing so is there some thread that you see in your life um, I would probably look at it, I would flip the question around. Um, there's definitely a pre-Susanna and post-Susanna, my wife. <laughs> I mean, so Susanna's incredible. She's, you know, she's just taken the time to really focus on understanding where insecurities come from, her insecurities and others' insecurities, and, and talking to people and teaching people. You know, so she... She's in chiropractic school, but really what she wants to do is is sort of what we were talking about, this idea that, you know, there's all this trauma in our body and how does she do body work to work on that trauma or PTSD that we might have. Um, and she's coupling that with things like this, you know, love, sex, and relationship, you know, coursework or uh, things like, um, you know, a lot of different psychology uh, methods of really of really understanding how to solve a lot of these 
traumas and PTSDs. And yeah, it, you know, and it's not just on her own life, but even, you know, she, she spent three years of her life doing a lot of anti-racism work as well. And, and so a lot of that has helped me, you know, really understand myself and, and just a lot of these blinders that I had on growing up as well uh, and how to internalize and, and go forward with them. Um, and um, so there's definitely a pre-her and a post-her. I'm yeah. a definitely a much better person after her, um, you know, and I know that's putting a lot of pressure on her, but, you know, I, I appreciate that she was there for that, you know. Yeah. Um, it made, really made me a better person for, for everyone else around me and, you know, future kids as well. Um, in terms of a common thread... You know, I, it's funny we talked about it, but that confidence is always sort of has been there, right? Is, is at this at the end of the day, understanding that hey, I am always going to work hard to be the best I can be at anything I'm doing, and you know, here's what I'm doing, and how do I tell people that, right? Yeah. And making sure, and also understanding people's perception of me, and and figuring out how to make sure that I'm I'm on top of that narrative as well, right? Does that mean that I'm overly nice as like a fake nice sort of thing? No, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm genuinely trying to be a good person when I talk to people um, yeah. and, and understand them and be hospital with them, hospita hospitable to them. But yeah, no, that's a really, really interesting question and really beautiful what you said as well. But yeah, I, I really do kind of segment it that way. And, and the common theme there is, is just being confident, you know? Yeah, yeah man, I think, I don't know if you attribute this to your success and I have no way of knowing because I don't work with you but I could see that as one of the things like I think your confidence leads to your outward um, treatment of people I guess your hospitable personality um, and I could see that being just like if you're easier to work with and you you make people feel loved and cared for then you you know they're gonna want to work with you more yeah no and, and I own up to mistakes I make you know and I definitely do this thing where, you know, and I'm working on this. This is actually something I'm really working on is this martyrdom that I like to do sometimes where if I make a mistake, then, oh, I need to be punished somehow, right? Ooh. So, yeah, it, it, you know, it, I need to be punished somehow and, and just making sure that, you know, that that's not the case usually. You, you don't have yeah. to punish yourself for a mistake you made. You could say you made a mistake and this is X, Y, and Z of how I'm going to fix it and that's it. You don't have to punish yourself further. Because at the end of the day, what people, I've learned what people care more about is that mistakes are always going to be made. It's just how you react to them and, and how you make sure that you own up and, and uh, take care of people going forward. Yeah. That's a big learning, man. Dude. What you just said that you snuck in there, that, that's a big one. Um, when you make a mistake, you feel like you need to be punished. That's a big one. And now I have, I'm probably going to have to explore that idea. It, it, for it's myself. so, in, like, here's a good example. It's, so I had a customer who bought eight items of one thing, eight items, right? That's like a lot, right? It's not a part of a piece of equipment. So that's, you know, it's, I think a $5,000 order or something. So, yeah. that, and they're a small company, so that's a lot for them. Um, and so he called me, he said, okay, we want to buy it. And I said, yeah, sure, of course, I'll put it in. So I put in the order. Um, this was in like middle of May, so our lead times were a lot longer. Um, but about a month later, it eventually got shipped to him. And he takes a picture and sends me all these boxes that arrived at his doorstep. He's like, I canceled this order. 
the customer doesn't want it anymore. I canceled it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, I take that stuff seriously. If someone ordered eight items of something, especially, you know, I know how important this order is for you. And if you say you called me, no written anything anywhere, no text, no, no email, you called me and you canceled it, I would take that seriously. Like, I am very adamant. So I told the guy, I said, listen, you know, if you want to return with us, it's a 20% restocking fee, right? Plus you have to send it back to us. You have to pay for the shipping and send it back to us. I'm like, here's what I can do. Let me talk to all my customers in the area who might want to buy this specific thing and let me see if they're willing to do a deal with you, right? So I spent like a month trying to figure that out. And I didn't like put a lot of, uh, it's not like I spent every day working on it, but I definitely, you know, made a couple calls, right? I definitely, you know, did put some effort and time into it. Didn't work out. You know, everyone's short on cash right now. No one wants to really buy eight of anything to hold on to, right? They're only going to buy it if they need it. Um, So everyone said no. Uh, So I I told the guy, I'm like, hey, man. So this is what I did. I said, we're going to have to go there. And and I already talked to my team and my bosses, and they said, no, we're not going to waive the restocking fee, right? This is their fault, ultimately. They have no way to prove that it was your fault. Um, and you're also saying it's not your fault, so therefore they have to pay the restocking fee. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I will pay the shipping fee back. You will have to pay the restocking fee. I'm so sorry. Um, that's the only way forward. I'm like, I am totally, like, the, I am adamant. I did not make a mistake. However, I am learning from the situation that I need to demand a written cancellation or written order at all times so therefore here's how i will punish myself for this aka (laughs) what is it it's going to be like two you know 200 250 bucks for something like that that's a big deal right that's not light change or anything like that 250 bucks you know that i wasn't expecting and um and it's funny you know he responded negatively to it uh and my boss looked at it and she was like dude okay, just tell them we'll waive it, like, but, you know, kind of put them on a short leash now, and, and she's like, also, what are you doing, like, why are you pushing, putting yourself into this now, like, you know, you're just giving him more ammo to say that you inherently believe that you did make a mistake when you know you didn't, Um, so that's just a good example, you know, and that happened a couple days ago, and, you know, so I'm still working on this, that's, that's, uh, yeah, don't, don't, so, so, yeah, so it's, in those sort of situations, it's say that you will do everything in your power to try to fix the situation, um, but at the same time, not you know gutting yourself as well. Yeah, that that's a that's a that's a heavy topic for sure. I want to talk about your relationship. Um, so you mentioned your wife earlier, and so I think I think every person we come in contact with changes us in some way. Um, right? Friendships, um, coworkers, things like that. But relationships uh, is something that I've, I think they're so close to us that you can't help but be changed by them in some way, I feel like. Um, I mean, I've, I've learned something new in every relationship that I've been in, and I've grown from it. Um, but if, if you're comfortable talking about it, I'd love to know what what your relationship with your wife has taught you? What what have you learned? I mean, there's so many things, I'm sure. So but. <laughs> many things. Man, man, man. Um, I don't even know where to begin. It's, I mean, it's indescribable how much I've learned from her. And, and she keeps learning as well. 
and then bringing me along for the ride and and trying all these interesting <laughs> I, I want to say the word mind game but it's not a mind game it, it really <laughs> is like a yeah don't do that <laughs> she just she just has a way of, of really framing things in a different context and for not for her to say how I should be feeling or how I should see things but in a way where I get there which is so important and I feel like has made me grow as a person because I've been able to she gives me the chance to actually get there on my own and then she'll tell me afterwards what she did to help me to get there and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> I, was like I didn't see it and even to this day she'll do it and I sound like I didn't see it that's awesome um, that's a gift man um, it's uh, I mean sorry to interrupt I'll, I'll let you talk too but, no, uh, no it's good <laughs> But my girlfriend does the same thing. She doesn't, it, I describe it as like a push and pull energy. Like yeah. there's some people that push you and it's more like, yo, you need to do this versus a pull. It's, it's like, I describe it as she is such a good person to me. I mean, to the world, but to me specifically. And because of that nature, that personality um, and those actions, it makes me want to go towards her it, it pulled like her energy is pulling me to her in a way you know what i mean and then how you're describing um how your wife uh, kind of treats you and teaches you uh it's it feels like that it, it definitely is a two-way street which i appreciate and love i mean the conversations we have and it's never it never blows up it, you know we, we definitely obviously there's going to be fights but it, it just the conversations we have, we're able to respect each other and respect our viewpoints. And there are things that I say to her that she gets. And more often, there are things that she says that are more profound for me. But yeah, I just, there, it's, it's undescribable. I mean, what I've learned from her, right? I'm a better person. I'm a better, you know, son. I'm a better husband. I'm a better feminist. I'm a better, you know, person who fights for people's rights based on racism. I guess better anti-racist is the word I wanted to use. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a better human in society. I'm a better worker. I'm a better, you know, person to be managed. I, I just, yeah, there is that, you know, I've always had that inherent belief that everyone, that everyone is good and, and, you know, that, you know, we need to do the work to understand where, where that good is coming from. And it's just been, if anything, she's given me the tools to, to really respond to that and to figure that out more. I, it's, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to put it lightly and I don't want to, I don't want to just leave it at that because there's so much that I, I appreciate about her and, and um, yeah, I love her. Yeah. So before the last question, uh, is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't brought up? Oh man talked about a lot this has been really great I, i'm really i want to talk about i mean just you're these questions have been profound this is a really good job you're 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 really on to something here and i i'm excited to see you grow and and excited to see you continue doing this yeah i appreciate it bro i mean this is part two right i mean <laughs> right it's funny we that first conversation so yeah so if anyone's listening here that we did record this earlier what was that a year ago and what was interesting was I was in the middle of reading a, a really great book about explaining how, how to just be financially independent. And it was more or less a mindset shift. 
is what the book was about on how to shift your mindset around money. And, and mm. I think, I think a majority of what I gave you in that conversation was pretty much verbatim from that book. Um, whereas I think this interview, you're getting more of me, which I actually mm. think is better. It's um, great. Even if what I said before was probably more sound bitey, but it's okay. Yeah. I mean, you did great in both, you know, you're, you're <laughs> <laughs> thank you man thank you um no i don't what what's the last question let's hear it yeah i, I think you know this question already um i don't know actually i, I might have introduced it later but so we as humans put up statues of people not because we love those people but because we love what those people represent um when you pass on from this life and the world puts up a statue of you where would you want that statue to be put and where what would you want it to represent this is a really good question, and it's it's also a brilliantly timed question as well, because statues yeah. are and monuments are something that we're all talking about. Um, oh my god, I've never thought about this before. This is such a good question. Where would I want it to be? That's well, I mean, right off the bat, you probably want it to be in a place of significance where I grew up. I guess it could be in a museum, but a museum of what, right? Or you know, anything like that. Um, you know, honestly, I, I, I wanted to represent, um, geez, I will, come on. Why don't you help me out here? Give me uh what is your answer for this? Dude, I don't know. What? You're asking us and you don't even know? Come on. I've said, um, let's see. I think I've said before that I want to, so the goal of earthing is to, it started out as a way to create the overview effect. And that comes from um, this idea that came from astronauts. Basically, they go to space and the effect of looking back at Earth creates this feeling of like unity and oneness and also uh, the feeling that nothing is too big, but also that we're very, very, very small. So it's like this weird, uh, complex emotion that, that comes over you. Um, so I would say I would probably put a giant like ball of earth um, glowing in some the middle of a desert or somewhere that where there's nothing. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would be it. It would just be like people could go there and experience earth kind of like how the astronauts experience it, like in the middle of nowhere in, in complete darkness. Um, and all you see is that. That's really cool. That's, You've thought about this. Get out of here. <laughs> you did not just come up with that. That is really cool. Oh, man. That is really good. Okay. Well, go to commercial and, and I don't know, talk about Squarespace or something, and then we'll, we'll when we come back, I might have an answer. Um, what's interesting about your answer is you, you didn't, it's not you. It's more or less, right? You're not in the monument. Yeah. Yeah, actually, so I, I changed the question a little bit, but you can change it to that. So I used to ask, um, what would you want the statue to be of? And what would you want it to represent? No, no, no. I, I like that you changed the question because I, I think it makes it harder, to be honest, yeah. because now it's because I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is why me? Right. Like, oh, hold on. I haven't done enough to warrant this. Why me? Which in itself is something I should look into. Like, hey, why not me? Like, you know, yeah. come on, let's think about this. Why not me? Um, you know, 
at the end of the day, what I would like it to, and I guess, yeah, what I would like it to really signify is, is this idea of human decency and morality and, and the idea that all of us are inherently good people and we care about each other. Um, how that signifies in a statue and how I show that in a statue. I don't know. I'm (laughs) holding my hands up or something like that. And, and, uh, yeah, I think that might be the way to do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you or someone, you know, would be interested in being interviewed for the earthian podcast, reach out to us on Instagram at we are earthian. And of course, Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you and have a beautiful day.